First off, I want to say thank you for listening to the show. My name is Justin Yance. I am the host of the DMF, and unfortunately, there were some audio dropouts, and there was nothing else we could do to fix that. So thank you, and I apologize once again. Enjoy the show. Welcome to the DMF. I am your host, Justin Yance. This is episode 13, and we are talking about a most violent year. And I have with me a fellow cinephile. His name is Michael Bordwell. He's a fantastic actor and teacher. And uh, how are you doing, Mike? I'm good, Justin. Thank you for having me. And happy to be here for interesting. We're talking about a most violent year on episode lucky number 13. Oh, yeah. Good good point. (laughs) That's a good point. Yeah. Lucky 13. Yes. (laughs) I'll just change it to episode 14. There you go. (laughs) Um, so what did you think of the film A Most Violent Year is a fascinating film all of Shandor's films are really incredible when you look at them what was great about this one was just how honestly he was able to depict what 1981 New York City was like literally it really was one of the most violent years I mean statistically 1981 was probably the most dangerous year in the history of New York City like if you remember like in late in late 80 John Lennon was murdered in New York City and it was like almost like this little catalyst that kind of caused not that I'm saying John Lennon was the cause of all of this violent crime uptake but there was the trash strike there was the mob activity I was even look up like newspaper headlines of the Daily News or the New York Times in the 80s and even on holidays you'd see headlines like coma, guns down, violence. You know, if you check the statistics, I mean, there were over 2,000 murders that year in 81. You know, and you compare, you know, over 136,000 vehicle thefts, over 120,000 robberies. And that's what was reported, right? You don't Mm -hmm. even know what Mm -hmm. wasn't there. So when Shandor makes this film, you know, and this, you know, had a little bit to do excuse me, you know, with the oil crisis and the shortage, there was that oil shortage that was going on, which is probably the cat, the reason for what, putting Abel and Anna in the oil business and, you know, the different, um, the partners, the other people that were running the other oil companies. So I just love how he was able yeah. to create this really gritty view of New York City in 1981 and just continue this tale. I mean, He's a phenomenal filmmaker. He's only made four films, but they all kind of stem together in these survivalist tales of like man versus man and man versus human nature of man. Like all of the films yeah. that he's done, Margin Call, All is Lost, A Most Violent Year, and even last year's uh, Triple Frontier, the first film that he actually directed that he wasn't the sole writer on. He actually co-wrote it with Mark Ball. Um, and took over for Catherine Bigelow and Catherine Bigelow walked away from the project. I believe due to scheduling conflicts, it had been a film in the work for 10 years, but it's still this idea of man and what he does to survive and make a better life. And the fact that we mm. were able to see this depicted in New York city, 1981. It's interesting that he's placed two of these great stories that and margin call in New York city, which kind of speaks to, that and 
I mean, being from New York myself, growing up on Long Island and running into New York City as often as I could. I mean, I even remember going into the city in the 80s as a kid and being scared sometimes of what I well, saw. That was my next question is I was going to ask you, because you told me that you grew up in 1981. I mean, you, you were you were around the city in 1981. So, like, talk a little bit about what that was like. Well, to be fair, I wasn't really in the city in 1981 because I was a little, little child. But a little <laughs> bit later in the 80s, though, um, I was going in frequently, probably from the late 80s, early 90s, when we started coming out of all of this. But I remember, you know, riding the subways and having them being just as graffitied and my grandmother holding my hand when we were taking the train in or the subway and going into Brooklyn, telling me not to look at anybody, look down, don't make eye contact, like, you don't know what's going to happen. You know, and then it's funny, the neighborhood that I remember going to in Brooklyn uh, specifically mm. where I had family when we would go there for the marathon in the late 80s, early 90s, I was always being told, be careful, don't make, make eye contact, you know, the city's not a safe place. And then it's funny, about 15 years later, I ended up moving into an apartment right around the corner from where my cousin was. And I worked in that neighborhood for seven years, which is now Fort Greene, Clinton Hill, which is one of the most more expensive neighborhoods in Brooklyn that I actually got priced out of when I was living there. So it's interesting <laughs> to see how it went from being the neighborhood that I walked around and was told to be careful and not make eye contact, you know, and I ended up living there uh, for seven or eight years and working in the neighborhood. So, yeah, I mean, that's what you say about, you know, what's what's happened to New York. You're seeing that even in Harlem now is they're starting to price people out. And, you know, I, I think they want to do that with the whole city, with the whole area of like Manhattan. Well, mu and make it just uh, well, much of it is, pricey. Yeah, much of it has become gentrified. And, you know, some people say that it's for the better. Yeah. Some people say, well, it's for the worse. I don't necessarily have an opinion and fall on one side or the other. Um, it's just interesting when you look at the history of the city. And I just love going back to those, I guess you could call them darker days. I mean, I don't know if you saw, but there was a short documentary that was produced as a companion piece to Most Violent Year. It's called New mm -hmm. York City, 1981, A Most Violent Year. It's, I did see that. It's a short, like, six-minute documentary, but you watch that and the way they talk about the city and, you know, someone in the documentary referenced it that New York City at the time in the 80s was like being in a third-world country. Yeah, he said he, one of the I think they start the that little documentary short off with he says it's like Escape from New York. Right. That's, Which is a film that I believe is, was shot in St. Louis, Missouri. So let's not give that one. Yes. Uh, <laughs> the credit that it's due. If you want to talk about the gritty life of New York, watch a movie like um, Prince of the City, the Sidney Lumet film with um, Treat Williams. That one was filmed in New York City in 8081, was released in 81. Wow, that's a, it, it, Treat Williams. Wow. Yep, that's <laughs> and Sidney Lumet. Um, so yeah, so you got to go in the city. I mean, did you notice anything different about you know people? Like, what what would you say is the difference between 1981 and you know now? Other than it being safer and. Right. It's not fear and fear. I mean, again, and let me clarify, I can't really compare it easily to 1981. I was a small child. I can compare it to the late 80s after we had the stock market crash of 87. Um, 
the streets got cleaner. People were more friendly. You didn't have to worry about keeping your eye on everything. Not that I'm saying we live in a utopia now, especially in our current situation, not even talking about the pandemic, but all of the other things that are happening. But, you know, it's just, we're a, we're a city of resurgence. And look, we've come back from so many things. And so, you know, that's why I'm hopeful for us now coming out of this, you know, New York City in this pandemic has been doing some strong practices, you know, to move us forward with, you know, slowly reopening different things in the phases we bounced back from 9-11. We've bounced back from stock market crashes. So, you know, hmm. we're survivors. Now, you you talked a little bit about, you know, how you like a lot of what J.C. Shandor's films does. Could you elaborate a little more on that? So what I love when I watch, when I watch any film, I look for something that, while I can appreciate a film that's a straight up comedy or a straight up drama or a straight up horror film, I can appreciate that. But when someone can layer different genres together into one intriguing film for you to watch, I find that fascinating. So even though his films sometimes get classified and margin and the first three, I mean, Triple Frontier is a different, unique piece on its own, but Margin Call, All Is Lost, Most Violent Year are generally considered dramas. But drama is such a broad term. But, I mean, he really makes thrillers. And not thrillers in a sense where we need to psychologically mess with your head. There's not somebody that's necessarily, you know, in dire straits. Although, let's admit it, the man in all his loss is in dire straits. He's in a boat in the middle of the Indian Ocean about to sink. But the survivalist tales and what he does and how he's worked with his cinematographers and worked with his crew to build these really tense moments in some ordinary situations, right? In Margin Call, when they're looking at the report that's about, that's predicting how the stock market is about to crash, right? In the, yeah. in the 2000s, in All Is Lost, those moments when Robert Redford is, you know, patching up that boat and every time he hits a piece of that storm, in a most violent year, every event that happens and the showdowns he sets, his just ability to use dialogue to ratchet up the tension is phenomenal to look at because you feel like, okay, I'm going to watch this drama, but now I'm actually watching a thriller. I'm going to watch what's going to happen. I don't quite know the turn this is going to take. Who's going to come out surviving at the end? That's why I hate to generalize any yeah. film as one thing, but his films are very strong survivalist tales. Even Triple Frontier, when you have five former special ops soldiers and friends who go and, you know, they go to take down a South American drug lord and take his money back. And will they make it back to the U.S. in this last effort to survive? So I mm. love that he can build these tensions in these situations. I think he's a masterful storyteller in that respect. He's kind of like um, the John McClane of, uh, of directors. He takes these mundane little things and, you know, turns them into these huge things. Similar to John McClane, you know, in Die Hard, you know, here's this normal man and he overcomes these insurmountable odds. Right. And he's got a great um, pair that he's working but, with, Neil Dodson and Anna Gerb, um, two of the founding producers yeah. of Behind the Door. And they've produced all four of his films. Like, not necessarily all of them with Behind yep. the Door Productions, but those two have been with him on all four films. That's his team. 
they they, they did um I don't know if you listen to the commentary track. Th those are the people that are talking. It's Neil, JC, and uh, Anna. I didn't hear the commentary track, but I did see um, a behind-the-scenes interview with them, and they've talked about you know how they've crafted their mm -hmm. stories, and they do an incredible job. I can't wait to see what's next. I don't know if you've seen Triple Frontier yet on yeah. Netflix, but that one was a little uncomfortable to watch at times, but very well done. Really? It's it's like that. Wow. All right. I'm going to have to definitely check that out. Um, what do you think of um, Abel and Anna being played by Jessica Chastain and Oscar Isaac? What do you think about their relationship? I think the fact that they had a history together makes them play Anna and Abel as such a believable, realistic couple. They'd known each other from Juilliard. Jessica championed him to be in the film, which I believe you referenced in the prior episode talking about the film i did so they worked very right they work very well together and they're both very strong performers in the different roles that they do though i would almost want to argue you because you said that you felt that this was maybe her best role i would want to challenge you on that depending on um you know the scope work and she's interesting because we didn't really know who she was and then all of a sudden out of left field um, the Help and Tree of Life came out in the same year. And it was like she had done all of these films that were shelved. And then they all yeah. started coming out at the same time. And we all of a sudden, we were like, what about Jessica Chastain? What about Taking Shelter? That one with Michael yes, Shannon. She's great. Taking Shelter, Texas Killing Field. Even some of the earlier work, Jolene. And there was, um, I believe it was a TV movie or TV series, Blackbeard. She's just a strong performer in everything she does. Personally, for me, if I were to pick her strongest performance moments, I really have to go with Miss Sloan and Zero Dark Thirty. That's just me. I I love um, Miss Sloan. That was she was great in that. A lot of people haven't seen that film. It kind of just like fell off the face of the earth. I feel like, but I love her in that film. And Zero Dark Thirty, I like that film. Yeah, but I, I don't know. I just like the what she did with Anna because she really brought in that. I, I mentioned this before, but you know that this hidden ferociousness. You knew she would cut off anyone she needs to to get her way, and I like the way she did. Actually, the film's called Take Shelter, not Taking Shelter. Gotcha. <laughs> just so I don't get ruined for that. <laughs> No, um, and so I, I agree with you on that. There was this, the birthday party scene when they're coming mm -hmm. in to, you know, search the house after her and Abel have hidden the boxes of books. I agree with you, like an animal, and maybe we're getting that image because of those, those yeah. nails, right? She's ready to attack like a mama bear. And, you know, I yeah. just, you're right. She, I love how she just looks at the DA after he says, you know, well, maybe you're clean, but I know you're, I knew your father. And it's like this whole thing. Is it so much a bell or is it that this DA has been going after this business and industry? And because you can kind of tell, even though it's, it's hinted at, it's never directly said that Anna is the daughter of a mobster. And we know that there was a mob scene. We know a bell yeah. bought the business from her father because, you know, DA Lawrence, David Oyelowo, who gives a very nice performance as that DA, uh, assistant DA, you know, she says, well, Maybe you're right here, but I knew your father. And as you said, she's like, yes, good for you. Yeah. Like, but my husband is not my father, not even close. 
So if I were you, and yeah. she's just the way she has the cigarette in her hand with the so fingers, she's like, so if I were you, I would start treating us with a little more respect, or I guarantee he will make it his mission in life to ruin you. This, meaning this invasion during the birthday, was very disrespectful. Yeah, yeah what, what, one thing I love is uh, when they first show up at the door, she shows up all nice and like, okay, look, look, everything's fine. We, we just need to get the people out of the house so that she can buy time to get the files under yep. the house. <laughs> and, then, and then she completely changes and, you know, you know, she's like, no, I'm going to let him know how I really yeah. feel. I don't, you know, when she says, yeah, are off. disrespectful. I love that. Yeah. And Oscar Isaac. So talk about Oscar Isaac. He's turned in a solid body of work. He really created this character. You believe that he will do anything to protect his family. He wants to be an honest man. He wants to do everything by the books. He doesn't want to get them in yeah. trouble. Even when we learn, you know, that they actually have some of the money they need to close the deal on buying the docs because. Yeah, and had been skimming money off the top, which set him <laughs> off. But, I you know. know, the fact that, you know, he's trying to be so good and so honest and fight. Like, I love the fact that all this, and even the back and forth with him when he gets upset with her for having that gun and shooting that deer is still upsetting for me. But he wouldn't even think that. He couldn't even kill the deer that they had accidentally hit on the road. He's such a good-hearted person, and anytime yeah. he had to get violent, like when he caught the guy who had stolen his truck, and you know when he had to yeah. stand up to Julian, it's like you could see the pain in his eyes. Like I don't want to go to this place. You're forcing me to go to this place, and I'm gonna do what yeah. I have to do, yeah. but I'm gonna try to do this in the best way. Although I kind of have a feeling, I think he's. I mean, I don't know how many spoilers you do on this podcast. And to the listeners, I apologize for the spoiler here. We're, we're going to – I put a spoilers thing on there. We're talk about whatever you want to but talk at, about. about yeah, the at film. the end of the film, once he, you know, has the doc, he's cleared this piece. And he is, as they've referenced it, even when she references it to him, Anna, when they're in one of their last battles, you know, this desire to achieve the American dream and make something of themselves. You know, it's fascinating. This film is an immigrant story, but not about like immigrants coming to the country for the first time, but wanting to make something. Julian wants to, Abel wants to, Anna wants that for her yeah. family. D.A. Lawrence wants to do that and advance his career, you know, as an African-American man it's from Brooklyn. Just... So it's this fascinating combination of storylines and what we do to get there and some people being willing to do it the right way and some people willing to, you know, cut a corner here and there but then i kind of wonder is abel going to start mm -hmm. losing some of that now because he kind of has that exchange with the da at the end like yeah he's taking a yeah break. like you're going to be in a very strong political power like the guy in far rockaway he put him out of business now once he realized that the guy from far rockaway was the one who had stolen two of his trucks or i'm sorry bought the oil that was taken from two of his trucks yeah and that that's played by Glenn Fleshler, yeah. who I I love the way he he plays that character in there. You know, he's just like he he acts like he's all got it figured out, and then you know, he's a bell slowly chips away at him, and you see that realization like, oh no, I'm screwed. <laughs> he yeah. knows he knows he's where done. he where the fuel is. So he's cornered <laughs> that market, and we know he started stealing customers from Peter's side of the business. 
Peter, played by Alessandro Alessandro yeah. Nivola, um, because Nivola. he even says, you know, I should have gone after you a bell sooner for taking my customers, but you know, friendly competition and the buyout. Yeah. Did you see any of the deleted scenes? Did you watch any of I those? I did. So if you're talking about the one where he welcomes him to the neighborhood and they're realizing their kids are in the school yeah, together, and he's like, that's... And he's already, like, putting his thumb on him in some ways. Like, you know, you know, he's just, like, he's already, you know, got his eye on him. Like, I'll, I'll, I'll get along with you. I'm watching you. Welcome to the neighborhood. Don't mess with my business. Yeah. But that's, that's what don't, business... Don't get... Don't get too ahead of yourself. Right, but that's what business is. You're <laughs> always looking for that edge. And there are those that yeah. do it the right way, which is what Abel was doing. Everything he did, as far as I could tell, was above board. It was some of the people working with him, like his wife, that maybe yeah. – and his lawyer. Let's not leave out Albert Brooks's lawyer character, who kind of knew a little bit about this. And that led to a tense moment. So yeah. I have a feeling whatever happens after this event, I doubt – he'll be working with them much longer. Well, that, that's what uh, J.C. Shandor says in the commentaries. Like, yeah, I think he's going to still fire him. And I'm like, I don't know. He may fire him, but he Abel's also the type of guy that's like, you know what? This guy works well with what I'm doing right now. Do I want to screw it up? And does he want to be, you know, does he want to be so duplicitous where he doesn't want to get Albert Brooks here? Say that again. Because Albert Brooks's character, Andrew uh, Walsh, I think is the last name, probably, you know, would go to his competitors. You know, it's better to have him in the castle. Right. He may take away a lot of his Well, and you're also going to wonder now, but I don't... Abel is such an honorable man, but is he going to start to develop some kind of duplicitousness? Like, I'm not doing anything. My hands are clean. I have people to do that for me. Oh, I... I think that's already happening. Yeah, that that's definitely good. I think that's definitely going to happen. Because he already took the bribe. He took the bribe from, uh, you know, at the very end. And we're seeing him, you know. I, I mean, I love that visual when, the, you know, uh, Julian shoots himself and the, the bullet goes and hits the tank. Yeah. And it's leaking oil. Like the oil is now stained with blood. It's like now it, it's, it can never really be clean. Because this guy has died here. Yeah. And even while he's while they're scraping him up, he's there with the DA making a deal. And he says the thing uh, called uh, deontology by Immanuel Kant. Uh, a person should not make a decision based on outcome, but on what is most right. And that's what he says to uh, the DA. He says, I always do what is most right. But we're already seeing that what he thinks is most right is not exactly ethical in the in the sense and he's yeah you know so i think yeah he's definitely going to become duplicitous um one thing you brought up to me is you want to talk about some of the shakespearean elements about this so let's let's talk about it yeah there's something interesting when you look at abel and anna's relationship and you can very much see a little bit of a macbeth lady macbeth relationship behind the two of them I mean, that's, 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 the, that's the tale. We've heard it a lot of times. You know, they, it's like they say, behind every man is a strong woman. Um, you know, and whether or not they're able to present that, you know, and how they go about doing that. And it's true what they say, and let's, let's respect. Nobody would be here without women. We know that for a fact. Yeah. She, and she gives them the final push. She does. And she's the one that... 
And she's the one who will get her hands dirty, even in the simple scene when, you know, it's unfortunate they hit that deer on the way home. And Lord knows that's one of my biggest fears when I drive upstate. They never really clarified where their house was. It was either somewhere on Long Island or somewhere up in a Westchester area. It wasn't in one of the five boroughs. And that's, I mean, as a driver, that's one of my biggest fears when I drive late at night is that a deer is going to come and like nail me in the side of the car. Um, well, adding adding to that adding to that scene when he he's gonna you know he goes to the trunk and pulls out like a tire iron I'm like so is he gonna beat the deer to well, death? Well, that's probably like, his only option. He doesn't have a gun on him. He doesn't know that Anna has the gun. I that's know. probably gonna be the bluntest object funny. for him to do. And then all of a sudden, and it's like it's like Macbeth. He goes to Duncan with the knives, and he can't do it. Lady Macbeth says, "Give me those." Basically, in essence, I know I'm not quoting the line right. I mean, when you really, when you look at the the deer getting hit, it's kind of symbolic because that's like the first like kind of riff of what's going to spin off into everything. Now they're going to, you know, now his business is going to become in danger. It's like, it's almost symbolic, him hitting the deer. And he can't, you know, he's going to do it the right way. <laughs> Santa's just saying, yeah. shoots. And she kind of does it with a shrug right of her there. shoulders like, okay, that's done. Let's go home. Yeah. And Jane Andor said that when they get, get in the car, they probably didn't say a word to each other when they were driving up. Because when he gets back in the car, she's got like this little smile on her face. Like, yeah, I did that. <laughs> and he told, uh, he told uh, Oscar, he said, look, you're just waiting to just, just jump on her when they have the big, uh, the big fight. Yeah. She. Or the first big fight. He may be a, uh a man protecting his family, but she is also too. And she's really willing to go all out. She, you know, and she challenges him at every point. Anytime she thinks that he's not doing what he needs to do, she calls him out on it. And it's, yeah. you know, and again, in a real relationship, that's what you want to do. You want to be honest with your partner. And if they're doing something wrong, you need to call them out on it. Am I saying you tell your partner to do something illegal? No, but she keeps saying to him, you need to protect your family. If you don't, I will. Okay, you say you're going to do it, then do it. She even says to him at one point, you don't want me to get involved because we know whatever those roots are, whether it's through the connections of her family, whatever it is that she's going to do, whoever it is that she's going to call, probably one of those family members she called to get that gun in the first place. So some heavy. So they have that, you know, that relationship. And she does. She like you said, she gives him that last push at the end you know fortunately for them they have a happy ending that Macbeth and Lady Macbeth do not she does not go you know Anna's character does not go crazy does not you know go off the deep end and we do see you know some of her humanity when Julian does kill himself because you know she screams she turns away she you know she is still sensitive to the people that she works with and didn't want to see that so that was an interesting side of her character it's the only time we see her more like one of the main times in the film we see her in that you know weaker not strong state but do you think that she's there because she's more nervous about getting killed and she doesn't have a gun like is, is she really sympathetic or is she just kind of like you know i i don't know what he's going to do is he going to shoot us well they were all tense about that but because not they were all tense about that but julian puts that gun up to his 
jaw and holds it there for a minute. And then it's after the shot mm. rings out and she sees that, that she turns away. It wasn't preventative. That's not, that was not my mm. take on it. You know, and I don't think they wished anything mm. bad for Julian. They wanted to help him. You know, he went about, you know, and talk about no, him for a second. He's an interesting character because. Yeah, no, I was going to get to him. But one thing, I, I mean, with uh, with Anna, though, I feel like she, you know, feels bad. But she's. They're gonna lose sleep on that. She's she's going right back to you know, to business. Like okay, it's sad that he got killed, and I don't think Abel is gonna really lose sleep on it. I think he's sad that it's gonna do that. But I think, and they talked a little bit about this in the commentary that Abel doesn't really understand somebody that would kill himself. He sees that as weak. Right. So this like which one of the things I like that JC did in this film is he added these characters like. Like Julian, Julian, I'm sorry, Julian is like Abel used to be. And Peter is what Abel wants to be. Mm. You know, like the, the, the bearing images of, of who he was at one point. But yeah, let's talk a little bit about, um, about Julian played by um, uh, his name escapes me. <laughs> so many things here. But yeah, talk a little bit about Julian. So he he just wants the better life for him and his girlfriend, his wife. They never really specify whether his um, whether he's married. And you're talking about um, Elias Gabel played Julian. Elias Gabel, yes. So Scorpion and Catherine McPhee. So you know the opening film, opening of the film. One of the main scenes is him the first time that the truck gets hijacked by the two, the two, I guess you could say they're independent, independent minded businessmen because they just sell what they take. So they claim not really hired by anybody. And, you know, he's hijacked, he's beaten and he's left, you know, outside of the truck. You know, his jaw is broken, damaged. He's beaten to a pulp, you know. Anna and Abel say they're going to help take care of him. They get him home. Once he gets home, he even looks at Abel and says, you know, do you think I'm ready for sales? Like, he clearly does not want to drive those trucks anymore. He probably thinks the sales yeah. job is safe. Of course, we learn later one of the salesmen gets beat up. So really, is, is being yeah. a salesman safer than being the truck driver? Probably not. Not at this time, if you're in this dark yeah. competition. Um. You know, so he comes out of that and then he goes to drive the truck again. He's armed, even though Abel was very against, you know, arming his truck drivers because he didn't want anything illegal. The whole thing about the guns, too, is unique, how anti-gun he is with everything and everybody. Um, you know, and he doesn't even use it at the end. He has an opportunity to and he doesn't. He just chases down um, the character. I don't remember the character's name, but Christopher Abbott plays him, the one who survives at the end that had been ripping off yep. the truck. And, you know, Julian gets, uh, sadly, he gets to the end of his rope. Is it weakness, a way out? Probably he believes he doesn't have another alternative. You know, but again, we talk about characters who say they want to do things for their family. He believes he can't do anything for their family. He believes that Anna and Abel can. So he says to them, please take care of my family. They agree to. And I think they will. I agree. They probably aren't going to lose sleep over the fact that he did that. But they will still take care of the family. They made that promise. They're people of their word. They definitely will take care of him. 
one one of the things that uh, JC talked about is when he fires the gun, you know, and the police are coming. It would have been just better for uh, uh, for Julian to just surrender. He probably would have, you know, they could have gotten out of it. Be like, oh, it was in self defense. But since he ran, now it changes everything. What What do you think about that? I think he was scared. You know, the other two, they even said, yeah. well, I mean, I'm, I've never been in a situation like that. So it's hard for me to say, what would you have done? <laughs> I mean, you know, the only time I've ever fired a gun was at a firing range in Las Vegas or when I was a kid at Boy Scouts and we used like the little BB guns. You know, I'm not a gun person per se. You know, so I don't, I don't foresee myself ever being in a situation like that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to use that to segue into one of the things that I like that JC talked about and put in this film is the realisticness of the violence. This viol- the, it's when we see the gunfights, it's fast. Yeah. It's not this long drawn thing. It's fast. And I thought that was something interesting that JC Shandor brought to it because he was pr- approached with all these scripts of violent characters and gratuitous violence. And he, from that, came this this realistic take on violence talk a little bit about what, what you think about that well he doesn't feel that he has to do the the, the michael bay treatment <laughs> don't get me wrong michael bay if you ever listen to this love your films i actually enjoy all the transformer films and i know they're not all popular but i enjoy that franchise very much i, I appreciate a good you know a michael bay film the fast and the furious film I love a good blow them up action packed, unrealistic. Let's shoot the shoot the hell out of everything. But and again, and that's why like McGruber, what? like McGruber, right? Well, that McGruber <laughs> is an entity into another. Oh, Will Forte, you need to work more. And so, <laughs> so <cool. laughs> I the other day. Yeah, but it's like it's like a cult it classic is. now. But. It's so great. But that's what I started talking about when we started talking about Shandor before, how all of his films, he just can bring such a sense of realism to what it is. Like each of these four films, when I look at them, and I know we're primarily talking about Most Violent Year, but, you know, I recently in preparation for this, I watched all four films again. I really wanted to revisit his world. And again, he's some, and I, I hate to repeat myself, but he's masterful at how he can ground these situations where you truly feel what you're watching is really happening. Like you're a fly on the wall. You, you know, in margin call, you're Mm. standing in that wall street office in all is lost. You're maybe sitting opposite Robert Redford in that boat, praying to God that somebody is going to help you in most violent year. You almost feel like you could be sitting in that truck with Julian or that you're sitting. I mean, it's great. Um, the old school, like, I don't want to call it a mob scene, but that great scene in the restaurant where all like the heads of the oil company are sitting and taking a yeah. meeting. And I know you talked about that, you know, how, and that was something that did happen. Yeah. You know, people would rent out back rooms of restaurants to hold meetings. It's like, you feel like you're there. Even in Triple Frontier, I felt like I was the sixth member of that special forces tribe, forces group trying to get mm. this money and everything, you know, over the border. It's, ground thing it's uh, i don't feel like it's all hyper like i feel it's very he levels the playing field and i as a cinephile i appreciate that when you can really ground things in reality you're like yeah you know what that could actually happen 
saying that, let's talk a little bit about the idea that apparently there there's a treatment for this, um, a possible sequel to this film. That would be interesting. Yeah, I I think it. Um, here's the question I have: Is it going to be right after? this thing is it going to be after the stock market crashes in 87 or is it going to be into is, is it going to be you know 9 11 are we going to go to this t- time period like how far like wh- what is he is he going to look at the 90s like wh- where where do you think this is wh- what would you like to see i happen? think i'd like to see something more maybe with his kids and how they come into it so one of the deleted scenes mm which I'm glad they cut out because I really did feel like it kind of came out of nowhere and it kind of painted this whole thing with the daughters uh, fighting in the backseat. But we do reveal that the oldest daughter is 12. So I the thing with that scene is basically just showing that everything around them is affecting everyone, even their kids. But we don't see enough of the kids to really care. Right, and that's why I'm glad he cut it. No, you see that it's about how these situations are impacting, but because the kids are like tertiary yeah. characters and we don't really get to know them much. It does, it does kind of come out of left field. So, and I'm usually a proponent when I watch, I watch deleted scenes for almost every film that I watch. And I'm always like, no, that one should have stayed. Yeah. That one should have gone. Oh, no, that mm-hmm. one kind of plays. And that was the one I was like, you know what? That one's kind of left field. And he made that choice. He also cut out a, a quick family dinner scene when they move into the new house. Because that wasn't the focus yeah. of this film. They weren't really looking at the family aspect of this. And I think if they had included those two scenes, it might have muddied the waters a little bit. But getting to the point, we know the oldest daughter is 12. Yeah. So we know that this film takes place in 81. Six years later, we're going to have, the, I mean, in the mid 80s, we had the big Wall Street boom and everything was great. Oliver Stone's Wall Street and all of these big yeah. things that are happening. Um, Scorsese's Wolf of Wall Street, like all these things were starting to happen. Um, but then we had that crash in 87. And yeah. so six years, she'd be 18, 19. She's the oldest. I think it'd be interesting, depending on where they're putting their sequel, to do something like, how did this oil business yeah. impacted by that stock crash? Right? Because 81... Because yeah. there was a huge gas shortage in the late 70s. I mean, even though there was only approximately a 4%, I was researching, there was about a 4% less average amount of oil coming in from Iran and the different countries that were importing the oil. But that's what led to that oil shortage and why people were buying it up and they were jacking up the prices because they were afraid they were going to run out. So it's interesting, Chandor focused on the gas business in the 80s. He could have focused on a different one. On a sequel, it might be interesting if, is the daughter going into the business now, right? Are they bringing her into it as she's 18 and an adult? Or you could do something with a guy rising up who's going to put a bell out of business. The, the person, the person that, you know, you know, he put all the other guys, we'll, we'll, maybe we'll see that he put everybody else out of business. Peter. Or maybe Peter has a son that we don't know about and his daughter starts dating Peter's son. Yeah. (laughs) Well, that, that's a little bit too. Now we're getting into like sick. <laughs> well, now we're getting into a little Aaron Spelling, um, Darren Star kind of drama activity, but. <laughs> yeah, it would be, that would be. But I wouldn't want to go more than, be too but I'll be honest, I wouldn't want to go more than maybe six to seven years, maybe 10 max, because 
I love Oscar Isaac and Jessica Chastain in these roles. And if they were to do this massive time jump, they'd have to go into maybe an older age makeup Old thing. Mix. And I sometimes that can be hit or miss for me. And I don't want to see two other actors play these roles because I love what they did. So it's, they have yeah. to go somewhere within a, a 10 year range. Two, two old men, old man and an old woman. And they're like, man, here we are in a little, this is our business. Oh, they're, they're, they're going to be working that business until they, they're going to go, they'll go down fighting. So that's what I think would be better. Yeah, like in the 90s or something. And that way we get to, we see somebody try to, you know. And I have to think. Almost sins of the past mm -hmm. catching up with And them. something that's funny about the making of the film, I have to chuckle about when I was reading. Because, you know, the, the film yeah. came out at the end of 2014. So they were filming this probably late yeah. 2013, um, early 2014. And they said this is documentary, but it's true because I actually do remember that how we had this massive blizzard in early 2014. Like by February of 2014, New York City had had a record of 57 inches of snowfall by that point. Like we were inundated with snow in 2014. So it was funny that that was a cold snowy winter and they're filming a film called A Most Violent Year when they were dealing with severe violent temperatures that were low. Like I remember that winter. I was hunkering down. <laughs> I I remember that winter too. It was it was crazy because yeah, they started in like January twenty sixth of two thousand fourteen, and it was insane. Yeah, I, yeah it was by the end of February, New York City <laughs> had had a recorded fifty seven inches of snowfall that that winter season. Oh, that was so. Awesome. None of that snow in the film. <laughs> none of that snow in that film was fake. No, it was all real. Um, one of the things is uh, when it came out, uh, it kind of came out in select theaters in um, December 25th of 2014. I didn't see it till I came back to New York in like January of 2015. But I remember seeing it and just being because I'd seen the advertisements for it and I was I was blown. Away. It looked really interesting. What, what did you think about when like I'm sure you saw the previews like what brought you? to this film did you see it at the theater did so what, you rent it at home what, how did you come what's up what's funny is i saw it early i think i saw it in december i saw it in the early run in the city uh because i believe that was one christmas mm. i was in town because i remember seeing it very early right when it opened and i actually hadn't seen a trailer mm. for it i just remember looking at what new movies were coming out because uh, you're making me nostalgic for the times i could go to the movies I know it's only been about, what, four or five months, but it feels so much longer ago. But I remember, I remember I seeing, oh, there's a new film with Oscar Isaac and Jessica Chastain. Oh, it's written and directed by the guy that did Margin Call. I know All Is Lost came out after that, but I kind of saw All Is Lost <laughs> later. But Margin Call I loved from the get-go. So I just went to see the film based on that it was Oscar Isaac and Jessica Chastain in a J.C. Shandor film. I didn't see a trailer. I had no idea what it was about. I just knew I was going to see the wow. two of them in a film by him. Because I was already a Chastain fan and a, and a Oscar Isaac fan. Inside Lewin Davis is probably, and I know this is an unpopular opinion, but mm. that's, Inside Lewin Davis is probably my favorite, or at least in my top three favorites of all the Coen Brothers films. And again, Brilliant. I just, I love films that take place in my city. I love films that, show the different well, eras of where, New York. That's where they, 
that's where they met uh, the producers, met uh, Oscar Isaac for this yeah. film, was when he was doing promotion for Inside Lewin Davis. It was like at Cannes. And, and Most year. Violent and Year had its limited produced- run in New York and L.A. for award season contention because you needed, you know, the, mm-hmm. the, I believe it's the seven or 14 days of theatrical release in theaters in order to qualify uh, for the awards. And I have to admit, I mean, I was thrilled to see Jessica you- Chastain get nominated for a supporting actress Golden Globe. I think the fact that this film didn't get a single Oscar nomination was criminal. I- very sad. Very sad. What, what did you think? Um, because I, I did a lot of research in this. I didn't know that Charlize Theron uh, passed on this. And originally it was going to be Javier Bardem. Mm-hmm. Do you think, what, what do you think that film would have been like? <laughs> I think it would have been interesting. Look, I respect the two of them in their veins. I'm not a huge Javier Bardem fan, though I enjoy his film. I love, I, yeah. I love I love Charlize Theron. I mean, Bombshell was one of my favorite films of last year. And what she did with that and that whole Fox News scandal. Well, it's, I mean, I could yeah, go into a whole tirade about that because I have a friend who worked at Fox News I, when that she, was all going down. So I actually. <laughs> she was almost exactly Megyn Kelly because I'd watch her on, on the news and I was like, wow, yeah. she like really nailed it. Everything was yeah. I, I thought that was I. Th- I think that's her best role. To be honest with you, I would have liked to have seen her win the Oscar for that because I just thought she was Megyn Kelly. Like I, I couldn't see her as anything else. I forgot she was Charlie's Theron while I was watching yeah. it. So I, I, I thought that was a wonderful performance. But uh, moving on from that, um, yeah, and. I, don't, I can't see Javier. I mean, Javier playing this role. I, I mean, I guess Abel would have had to have been older then. Mm-hmm. Kind of an older character, I think, to do that. But anyways, that's he, neither here nor there. What? Let's uh, wrap up. What do you what 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 do you think is going to be the lasting impression of this film? Uh, I mean, I think for people who. <laughs> see it or have seen it or will see it. I mean, they will see a very gritty, realistic, you know, vision of what New York City was like in 81, in the early 80s and what people did. It's a very realistic film. It's grounded in sincerity and honesty of the moment. And, you know, I, and I remember you referenced when you talked about it, how you felt the title of the film maybe should have been the America or the American dream, but I think they kind of nailed the title perfectly because it's so much more than just the American dream and what we've done to accomplish it or what we do to achieve it. Just, you know, how we survive these things and just the use of the word violent kind of grips you in a certain way. That's going to make you attuned to something. Mm. So it's a fascinating title and even the color scheme for all of the press materials, just the blacks and the purples and the darker shades and the hues that the the marketing team knew very well what to do with this. And I think because you, you mentioned, uh, you mentioned the marketing, I'm looking at the, uh, the marketing of it right now. And if you look at some of the, uh, some of the marketing they did in other countries, they, they changed the color scheme around and it, almost looks comical it almost looks like they have one where it says 19 it's orange 
and it shows Abel and Anna and Anna has her like, it looks like they're about to kiss. And I'm like, this makes it look like it's a, a romantic comedy or something in New York. I mean, different people have different takes and, you know, marketing companies are going to do what they need to do in order to get people to go. And some people are going to want to see yeah. a love story. Some people will want to see that, but you know, I truly feel our marketing was the best. And if you look at the movie posters, this film has three stars. Yeah. You have Oscar Isaac, Jessica Chastain, and New York City 1981 listed as like the three performers above the title. Like he's literally telling mm. you that New York City in 1981 is the third star of this film. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm looking at some of the promotion. They have also a promotion where if you look on the Blu-ray, it says um, Oscar Isaac, Jessica Chastain, David, Alessandro, and Albert. And then they put... <laughs> so they, I, I guess they wanted... Because this movie did make... It made like $5 million in the in the United States. It made, I think, 15 in... Um, the, the movie cost 20 million to make. I don't, you know, the fact that they're talking about a sequel is interesting because I don't know if this was like necessarily a hit or if they recouped what they, what they lost actually 12 million. Uh, but let's be honest overseas. Justin, is this the first time we've seen a movie get a sequel based on a low bring in of the, of the budget on the first and we're like, really, that's a sequel we're getting. But then, I mean, I, Good point. <laughs> Wouldn't be the first time. Definitely not going to be the last. And at least this is a story where I'd be like, you know what? I would revisit those characters again. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited. I, I can't wait to see what they do. Well, on that, I think we're about to wrap it up. Uh, Mike, what do you, how do you want people to reach you? So, do you have anything you'd like to plug? <laughs> <laughs> so I'm in the midst. I recently just finished a 31-day film challenge through Facebook. So if anyone has heard this and is interested to hear more about what I think about films or follow my thoughts, you can actually follow me at Cinephile Mike, C-I-N-E-T-H-I-L-E-M-I-K-E, -E -E, Cinephile Mike. That's my handle on Twitter and Instagram. You can look me up, Cinephile Mike, like my page on Facebook. And there's a YouTube channel coming with that soon with different retrospectives and commentaries. I'll be giving short little video vlogs. And so follow me on all social media. Look for Cinephile Mike. All right, Mike. Well, I think that about wraps thank it up. Thank you for having me. I want to say, thank yes, thank you. This has been great. You're so knowledgeable of thank the you. film. Could almost just sit let you talk <laughs> you know usually i have to like pull it out of people but you know you had you had almost just as much research as i had i'll, done, I'll happily so. come back anytime you want me <laughs> well thank you all right and on that the i think that about wraps it up i'd like to say thank you for listening and i will see you next time on the d M F.